Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B., and joining me today is a good mutual friend of mine through other guests of the podcast, uh, including Miss Crystal Stoltenpol, and uh, independent game developer of games including uh, sci-fi epic Mecha Ace, uh, high fantasy adventure The Hero of Kendrick Stone, and a fantasy war drama series Sabres of Infinity, uh, Mr. Paul Wang. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, I'm all right. Pretty good. Excellent. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, very nervous to be here, but... <laughs> There's nothing to be nervous about, sir. I am glad to have you here. So, when I had messaged you about being on the podcast, one of the topics that you had come up with that we bandied back and forth was the idea of how history can sort of impact narratives in general, but within the confines of gaming specifically as it relates to this podcast. Yeah, it's it's not just a matter of history in the sense of media interpreting past events, but also a matter of historiography of how the creators themselves see the historical events that they're either interpreting or using for inspiration. So it's kind of a double-barreled topic, both in the sense of historical verisimilitude and the idea of just quote-unquote, getting the story right, but also in the case of interpreting historical events as a political act in themselves. Oh, definitely. And it's you can see that easily in how fiction transforms political ideas of the day and makes them into fictional stories. And one of the classic Ur examples is Invasion of the Body Snatchers a film that was not only made during the Cold War, but remade during the Cold War, and specifically meant to kind of showcase Cold War fears through a way of aliens literally taking over the bodies of other people as kind of an allegory for fears of people, you know, being insiders for the Red Threat and everything of that nature. Absolutely, and there's also the example, well, I think the classic example of Lord of the Rings, where you had... A, a very clear-cut distinction between good and evil, despite there being flawed characters on the quote-unquote good side and so on, which was heavily based on the um, understanding of race which existed during Tolkien's time, despite the fact that Tolkien himself was, uh, at least by his standards, not a racist by his, the standards of his time. He did, uh, he did take those uh, baseline, almost subconscious assumptions on race and culture and kind of translate them into his own work. And that's a problem which, uh, well, I guess you could call it a problem, an issue which content creators and artists still have to this day, although granted with usually different stereotypes and different ideas. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting to note that as culture evolves and changes, and as our cultural tolerances and our cultural ideas change, we will see similar concepts recycled in a way that potentially changes how these things are presented. One of my favorite examples, and by favorite I mean one of the most depressing examples, is the film Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, yes. Where the original version, which was made, I want to say in the late 70s? I think it was the 60s. 60s, okay. Originally featured a narrative based around the idea of a white family having their white daughter bring a black man home to dinner, featuring Sidney Poitier as the black man and Catherine Houghton as the white woman. And then they remade this, sort of, in, I want to say 2003, 2004, under the name Guess Who, which is about a black family having their black daughter 
bring a white man home to dinner, featuring Aston Kutcher and Zoe Saldana. And I don't want to put too fine a point on that, but that kind of sort of comes from a place that maybe we're not super thrilled with the idea in in the world of cinema of, of seeing black men date white women anymore. I would almost say that that would be more tone deaf than intentionally uh, based on a because I mean the uh, the fear of interracial marriage and interracial uh, relationships was just as great, if not greater, back in the '50s, '60s, and '70s. I think this might have been one of those attempts to quote unquote not see race, so they could kind of create a subversion of the original story without really encompassing any of the fears that the original film was supposed to tackle, because the, the original film was focusing on the fear of white middle America dealing with the introduction of the, well, a black middle America, basically. The idea that you had this um, highly educated, morally upstanding black man dating their white daughter was a statement in itself. The, the idea that, uh, look, interracial, interracial relationships and interracial marriage isn't going to end the world. It's going to be fine. You just, you're just going to have to learn to live with it. But I don't think that same level of fear and racial apprehension exists within the black community, although obviously I'm not an expert on that. No, I just I just thought it was interesting, like that that was kind of a change that was sort of indicative of what we've started to see in Hollywood these days, where y you don't necessarily see the reverse. Like you'll you'll frequently see white dude with non-white woman, but you you rarely see white woman with non-white dude, mm -hmm. which is you know it it is what it is. Like I'm not necessarily saying that oh we're doing this or doing that, but it is an interesting change as time has evolved, and this film is just kind of a pointed example of that. Yeah, I guess so. Now, it's, it's worth noting that despite the fact that video games are a far newer medium in comparison to film, books, even various other types of artwork, painting, statues, things of that nature, they are not only subjected to these sorts of historical trends, but because of their less extensive history and their even less extensive than that history of being able to present complex developed narratives, you know, with text compression and whatnot being a thing. You can see these sorts of changes a lot more readily and quickly over time because gaming has been kind of desperately jumping in to adapt while also trying to get in as many stories as they can in a lot of cases. So you, you start to see that a lot more quickly and with a lot less research having to be done than you would in, say, having to go over the entire history of film or the history of writing or what have you. And there's also the fact that a lot of games, especially AAA games, tend to ape cinematic storytelling and expositional conventions to uh, basically... I, I'm not sure if it's completely out of, out of a hunger for spectacle or if it's kind of a thing where we kind of still have that anxiety that we're not being taken seriously as an art form, so... We have to plagiarize from more established and more accepted art forms to get our mainstream acceptance, e even though games themselves are, I'd say, considerably more widespread and are considerably more well-founded in today's society than most traditional forms of high art are. I feel like that's something that we're going to actually have to get into a little bit later, but to set the stage, I think it's a good place to start is in giving the listener kind of an example of how gaming has done this sort of thing. 
because we've talked about, you know, film examples, but where do games do this sort of thing? And for me personally, one of the biggest and most obvious evolutions that we see in terms of how we treat our historical evolution of, like, the narratives and whatnot in gaming can be easily pointed at one of the biggest, I guess, boogeymen that gaming just seems to love to death, and that's the zombie. Back in the mid-90s, when games like Resident Evil and, this doesn't necessarily apply, but Silent Hill and other such games were coming out, the idea that gaming was borrowing from quite heavily with the idea of the zombie was the standard George Romero zombie, where it was, you know, dead monster, maybe used to be your friends, shambling, bah, brains, all that shit. And a lot of those games played off of the George Romero concepts, where it's human who used to be human, now dead, trying to eat you, the other is coming to kill you, body horror, things of that nature, with just a touch of man is the real monster, again, in Resident Evil, Wesker is the ultimate bad guy, to the extent that he is orchestrating all of this behind the scenes, but the big focus was on the monsters, the scariness of the situation, being trapped in this house with these, you know, dead things, and so on and so forth. But then, as we as a culture started evolving away from the zombie story in and of itself into drama-heavy stories where zombies are kind of a part of that framework but aren't necessarily the single biggest threat, i.e. The Walking Dead, as a perfect example, we've started to see games that were predominantly based around zombie-heavy, kill-these-monsters-or-be-killed-by-them situations start to evolve their narratives in line with that, where some of these zombie stories have tried to actively ape the idea that The Walking Dead introduced. And, of course, it's cliche to say The Walking Dead does this, but Dead Rising 3, The Last of Us, State of Decay, Deadlight, all borrow from this. Drama is the most important aspect. Human drama, personal drama, and the zombies are just kind of a means to that end. It's almost like a disaster movie in that sense. Exactly. The zombies are just a disaster now. They're a thing to be survived rather than the core thing, the core motivator. And then other games in that genre just completely decided, no, we, we just want to be action movies now. They've embraced the idea of being the disaster movie, or even like 24 as a, as a similar example. So you've got Resident Evil's 4 through 6, and then Revelations really just became action movies where the zombies, the monsters, whatever, are just a part of the risk. And the big thing is about the action set pieces, the globe trotting, and things of that nature. I think that might actually have something to do with a post-9-11 mentality. I mean, in the 90s, uh, we were supposed to have a New World Order, Pax Americana was supposed to be on the rise, we were supposed to be heading towards a uh, newer, freer, wealthier, more prosperous world, so naturally the only, the, the um, or not the only thing, but the thing that threatened us the most was either our own internal base impulses or... Well, the, the idea of the deterioration of nature, or science gone mad, or what have you. But now we've kind of gotten to a point where we want a disaster movie, because it's the idea of the disaster is so ingrained in our recent history, but we also want a disaster that we can fight, that if we shoot it with enough bullets, it will go away. And that's I think, actually informs a lot of uh, 
gaming and how a lot of AAA games kind of try to see the world and frame their enemies after, uh, well, over the past decade, pretty much. Yeah, and it's, it's, with a game like Resident Evil, you can't immediately go to the Call of Duty sort of mindset of, there are terrorists, they be bad, shoot them terrorists, because it's been a franchise about horror shit for years at this point. So y you kind of utilize those zombies, those monsters, whatever, as bioweapons now. And that's, to be clear, that's always been a part of the franchise, but in all of the games prior to Resident Evil 4, the bioweaponry aspect of it was meant to be more of a, we overstepped our boundaries, we didn't understand what we were doing, man is dumb and science is going to ruin your shit sort of mentality. So you get into the situation where, you know, a house gets infested by zombies, a town gets infested by zombies, a dude gets turned into leeches and seeks revenge against Umbrella Corporation for some reason. And these were all ultimately science overtaking man. And then all of a sudden with Resident Evil 4, it's nope, we're mostly in control of this shit now and we're just going to unleash it on Africa or this town that's not Spain or the world in the case of Resident Evil 6. And it's, it's converted from being science sucks and it's going to get us all killed to science is a weapon that we're using against humanity and only a hell of a lot of bullets will stop science and save the day or whatever you want to call it. I think it's maybe less the science aspect of it as kind of a uh, symbol for man's hubris and more of just the results of that science being more likened to... Uh, I, I'm not sure how to say this. I... I feel like it's kind of an Icarus metaphor in a lot of respect. Obviously, in and of itself, science is perfectly fine, and I, I think the Resident Evil franchise at least partially understands that, but it's very much a case where they're kind of using science as a shorthand for, you know, people sort of overstepping their boundaries, science without morality, things of that nature, which, which, which is kind of a subtext in Bioshock to a certain extent, too, if you think about it, but it's using science as a weapon. Essentially, it's taking scientific concepts, regardless of the morality associated, and using it as a weapon to hurt others. It's the atomic bomb writ large. And bioweaponry in general is a thing that humanity as a whole has had to discuss and debate about for decades at this point. We have actual, like, worldwide edicts in place that basically say, no, you can't make bioweapons. You can make defenses against bioweapons, but you can't make bioweapons. And yet still we have like this kind of a story where it's like, well, you know, people are still going to make bioweapons because that's a scary thing and the demand can certainly be there if the weapons work well enough. And it's, there's a certain morality play that if it were a series that were better written than Resident Evil might actually be kind of interesting. But it's Resident Evil, so it's all a whole bunch of goofy bullshit. Well, neither Survival Horror nor the Resident Evil franchise are my specialties, so I wouldn't... I'm not sure I could offer any kind of insightful commentary on that franchise in particular. Oh, no, that's totally fine. It's like, we're all going to have our own individual specialties as far as that goes. But, I mean, you had mentioned other examples of how fiction borrowed. So, you know, like, for example, the idea of how fantasy genres in a lot of respects borrow from Tolkien basically all the damn time. The Western fantasy tradition basically steals a lot of uh, its conventions, not not just uh, its 
individual works, but a lot of its tropes from Lord of the Rings in particular, in, in the way that um, fantasy races are portrayed, in the way that everything kind of is ordered in the sense of a high fantasy battle between evil and good. There's a lot of uh, other fantasy out there, uh, especially literary fantasy, which is considerably different from that mold. But when it comes to gaming, I think we're uh, we're almost taking baby steps towards that direction because it, you see franchises try to subvert those tropes and wear that on their on their sleeve like uh like Dragon Age Origins did that with their whole dark fantasy thing. There's been other games like that. And really what they're doing is they're taking a handful of the tropes they can find and either injecting it with A Song of Ice and Fire, which I'd say is kind of codifying a new canon for Western fantasy, or really just taking one or two of those tropes and subverting them, like... The elves that Tolkien cast as the dying remnants of decadent civilizations in the mold of how Europeans in the early 20th century saw East Asia, well, now they're forest Welsh and uh, and Jews stuck in medieval towns, in, in medieval ghettos, so it's... But aside from that, a lot of the other tropes are still there. You still have young upstart humans who are totally not based on an... It, not based on a Western European slash uh, kind of English tradition, who are obviously the good guys because of that. You've got, uh, uh, you've still got your orcs in a sense. You've still got your in in the sen- in the form of the darkspawn. You've still got and and you've still got non-European cultures being branded as the other in the form of the Kunari, who are kind of like a mishmash between. Uh, they're they're almost like the uh, the Easterlings and the Haradrim in. Lord of the Rings themselves, kind of a mishmash of non-European cultures, uh, where the writers kind of took everything that looked cool and stuck them all together. And I feel like it's also interesting to note that you can easily see this, especially when you compare non-Western developed fantasy to Western developed fantasy. So we take as an example Dragon Age or Skyrim, and then you compare that to The Witcher or Final Fantasy XIV where you don't really have a lot of those same races and a lot of the same racial stereotypes from Tolkien because Tolkien isn't a formative part of their culture as far as fantasy goes. So in The Witcher, you know, the the entirety of the concept around that is that, you know, they have these people who are sort of like the characters from Dragon Age in that they hunt down monsters, but whereas those in Dragon Age do so specifically for the Darkspawn. In The Witcher, it's it's much more kind of a thankless job that you do with all monsters, and everybody just kind of treats you like garbage for doing it. And then in Final Fantasy XIV, as an example, they don't really have anything based around one race being better or worse than any others, and standard conventions like dwarves or orcs or what have you are kind of put aside. You still have elves, though, obviously. So you can have, you know, Lalafels, which are like just like knee-high humans in a lot of respects. Or, you know, Mithra, which are just cat boys and girls, and so on. And it's, it's you can see individual cultures kind of applying stuff that is interesting to their particular culture, narratively. 
there's there's distinct variance in how we handle our fantasy versus how others handle their fantasy. And when you start putting these things next to one another, it becomes more apparent that, huh, maybe we have specific frameworks in place that we're consistently borrowing from. I would actually argue that both uh, The Witcher and Final Fantasy XIV are, they kind of take the same frame, the, the same Tolkienian framework, but they interpret it based in a, uh, they interpret it through a different lens, the way The Witcher takes the traditional framework of uh, high fantasy and kind of uh, filters it through a um, an Eastern European-centric understanding of history and uh, politics, where instead of there being a uh, clash between good and evil, you have sort of this uh, war between this all-consuming quasi-fascist state in black armor and basically a series of very deeply flawed regimes which aren't uh which well in the books they're they're better only because they have some redeeming qualities to them and in the games uh, they really aren't that much better there's not much difference between uh Emir Var Emrys and uh, King Radovid and i think that's in turn kind of informed by eastern europe's recent history of being stuck between a series of militarist governments culminating in Nazi Germany to the west, and then a series of exp- of imperialist militarist governments uh, culminating in the Soviet Union to the east. And uh, one thing I actually found rather interesting about uh, the uh, way that the elves in The Witcher are portrayed, because I, I have a theory that they're actually supposed to represent the, um, the Muslim uh, ethnicities in... Eastern Europe and the Balkans, because uh, especially the Chechens, because uh, and this is like just a pet theory of mine, but uh, it's because the Temerian special forces that are play a prominent role in hunting them down, especially in the second game, have uh, they're called the White Stripes, right? There's a type of uh, there's a type of shirt. Sorry, they're called the Blue Stripes. I'm sorry, uh, but there's a specific uh, kind of shirt, a sailor striped undershirt, uh, which uh, is called the Telniashka in Eastern European, especially Russian culture, and they are particularly associated with Soviet and Russian paratroopers who did a lot of the fighting in the First and Second Chechen Wars. So I, I was thinking that there's... Uh, and likewise with Final Fantasy fourteen, where they they have the... Um, the, the basic foundations of Tolkienian fantasy, but they kind of interpret it in their own way. And I would say that it's less an interpretation based on Japanese culture itself and more an interpretation based on the built-up conventions of the Final Fantasy series. Well, the Final Fantasy series didn't necessarily have, like, Catgirl-type characters, the Galka slash Rogadin-style giant monsters. I kind of want to say it's maybe interpreted not so much through the Final Fantasy culture, because, again, like... Final Fantasies 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 didn't have these sorts of things, and probably interpreted more through anime culture. Mm. I, I, there's probably merit in that, although I would like to note that uh, the later Final Fantasies did have cat girls, especially uh, Final Fantasy Eleven, right? Yeah, which is the, the first instance where fourteen kind of borrowed... Well, fourteen is basically a direct pastiche of Final Fantasy Eleven. It's just the, the names are changed, but everything's the same. And uh, the... The the one thing that kind of the the one thing that strikes me as kind of interesting about Final Fantasy XIV's portrayal of the Elizen, the elves, 
is that uh, the uh, one primarily Elizan uh, nation of uh, Ishgard is kind of portrayed in the same way that Tolkien describes uh, his elves in the sense that they're a uh, secluded, ancient, kind of dying culture with its own strangeness and its own uh, otherness and its own aesthetic and uh, technical base, which is different from everyone else's. But as opposed to being more based on magic and mysticism and harmony with nature, which is where the kind of Western conception of elves as either uh, decadent Eastern cultures or noble savages comes from, uh, Ishgard's heavily based on machinery and religion and uh a, a lot of and with a lot of uh xenophobia thrown in and i almost wonder if they've kind of reversed the mirror here and are using it as kind of a uh an almost stereotype representation of what uh the west and especially the united states looks like to them it's certainly possible i mean i don't necessarily think that they're basing their ideas wholly off of tolkien such as it is and more so that they're probably basing it off of how we choose to represent it in our culture. Because mm-hmm. I don't, because I know that there's a certain degree of westernized fantasy that the Japanese do appreciate, but like Dungeons and Dragons never really caught on over there. They have their own version of it that I want to say is kind of based off of the Arslan franchise, but that could be completely wrong. I have no idea. And their games kind of borrow from those ideas based on how we've done it in our older games. For example, the Wizardry franchise was a thing that was popular for a while in the 80s, I want to say going into the early to mid-90s, that that kind of presented normalized concepts of Western fantasy as we understood them. And that is still a really popular franchise in Japan to the point where they're consistently making you know, dungeon crawlers based in that universe. So it's, I I wonder if it's not so much that they have taken the ideas of Tolkien and worked with them as it is that they've taken our kind of mashed up versions of that and then mashed it up further into their own culture. That would make sense, yeah. And, I mean, going even further beyond that, it's, we're also starting to see how, as franchises diversify a bit, they start to learn new lessons because they have to evolve with the times. And while it's not necessarily always in the best interest from a player-based perspective, it's kind of a case of there's only so much you can do with concepts that we came up with back in the 80s or back in the 90s or what have you, and we have to evolve that. And it's one of the examples that you had pointed out was the fact that we spent what, like a decade in World War II in all of the various first-person shooters before we eventually just had to stop? Not just World War II, but a very, very specific, uh, narrow focus on World War II. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, this was also kind of taken from another piece of media, I'd say, that uh, the Medal of Honor franchise and Call of Duty take, well, at least the um, the World War II set entries in those series take heavily from Saving Private Ryan, specifically. Yeah. Uh, especially the Omaha Beach scene, where you kind of have the same scene repeating in, in... You have that in Medal of Honor, you have that in, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure Call of Duty 2, I'm not sure about the others. And uh, definitely, uh, there is an intro in the beginning of the tutorial mission for Company of Heroes that... Uh, 
almost matches that scene, kind of, uh, not shot for shot, obviously, but very closely. Yeah, and it's, it's the Battle of Normandy in particular is a big one that shows up more often than it probably needs to, to the point where when we even got out of the point where we were doing World War II games and id slash Ravensoft slash Bethesda slash whoever wanted to revisit that concept in Wolfenstein The New Order, they did a version of that particular that that particular battle, I should say. But it was with this weird futuristic shit going on with like, you know, murderous like robot dogs and whatever other crazy stuff that had been come up with for that narrative. And it, it's it's we're at the point where that is that is kind of a measuring stick for that specific version of the first person shooter that we were doing for years until eventually people just stopped paying money to do the same things in World War II in that very specific theater of operations in World War II. I'd almost say that it's a self-reinforcing cycle where you take uh, this common perception of what happened in World War II, i.e. The, uh, the Omaha Beach landing, and you kind of regurgitate it enough times so that when people think World War II, that's immediately what they think. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing because, one, you can have that as a cultural shorthand where you say... Uh, okay, um, this is Omaha Beach, I'm in a Higgins boat, this is, I, I know what I'm doing, and uh, suddenly there's, it's a cultural touchstone which brings all the other references in and kind of puts everything together. But it also leads to a very, very distorted picture of what World War II was. And I'm, I'm going to kind of jump subjects again, but uh, one thing I noticed when Battlefield 1 was announced uh, a couple months ago, that... Uh, a lot of people said, "Why, why would we want a World War One game? It's just you're you're just going to die like animals in muddy trenches." And I, that was that itself was kind of reinforced by the media about the First World War that came before, especially things like, say, Blackadder Goes Forth, or even in 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 gaming perspectives. Oh, what was the one game, Valiant Hearts? Yeah, or or Verdun, which is literally. Um, where a regular multiplayer match is pretty much uh, you dying like an animal for 20 minutes, Ooh. repeatedly. And uh, and despite the fact that that was actually a very, very, very small portion of World War I. Uh, and uh, Battlefield 1 kind of caught on to that by showing off a whole bunch of uh, different portions of it, including the Gallipoli landings, the Battles of the Isonzo, in, uh, where trenches were actually extremely hard to dig because most of the ground was uh, some kind of soft stone, so any kind of shell burst would be sending sharp stone fragments everywhere. And uh, the, the Arab revolt in, uh, in the Middle East, and these are all things that haven't really been shown, kind of like how we had this huge glut of World War II games, but because the codifiers of that series was um, you're, playing, uh, you're generally playing as an American soldier uh, going through a certain set list of battles, you don't get to see the rest of the war. Like, there was an entire campaign fought against the Imperial Japanese Army in Southeast Asia, which, uh, there, I, I don't think there's any game about that at all. And, uh, despite the fact that that was a vital part of the war, or, for example, uh, the Battle of the Atlantic, which is very, very, very lightly covered, or the bombing campaigns over Western Europe, the battles in the Eastern Front that aren't either the Battle for Berlin or the Battle of Stalingrad. There's just 
so much shit to cover that we never have because we've, we're stuck in this feedback loop of World War II means Omaha Beach. Yeah, and it's, it's again, you kind of see that feedback loop, that idea of we have to keep doing the same thing, we have to keep doing the same thing, until you eventually get to the point where either internally you say, enough, we can't do this anymore, or you get forced into changing it because the market simply will not bear it. And outside of, you know, the, the, the World War II glut followed by doing anything that wasn't World War II as far as first-person shooters went, you can see that in evolving franchises and how they've changed what they've attempted to present for better or for worse. Uh, the evolution of the Tomb Raider franchise, where Lara Croft was invented in the 90s and she was just Indiana Batman, and that character, as presented eventually came to a point where the parent company could not market her any further than what they were doing and said, all right, we need to remake this character, and they made her into a more vulnerable character for the modern era. Or Devil May Cry started off as, you know, a comedy action series featuring a wise-talking smartass, and then Capcom says, well, we need to do something different, and they, they kind of look to the Western ideas of, like, you know, heavy consumerism a la you know, like a Fox News or a They Live, and they, they build their concepts in that way into a more serious, horror-themed action-style experience. I mean, you'll, you'll see that across all of gaming, where you have these sorts of ideas, and eventually they just need to evolve. Whether it's we are evolving from an idea that we thought was great 10 years ago and we just don't anymore or we're evolving from an idea where we've just done the concept to death, or we're just evolving to match up with the times, whatever the case may be. Historically speaking, our narratives are going to evolve and change based on what are our cultural touchstones, what are the hot new things at the moment that are reinterpreting the ideas. And I guess, I guess before we get into the, the big discussion about it, let's talk about why that's happening. Um, well, the easiest reason why is because it's, uh, well, it's easy. You don't have to, you're basically taking from media that already exists and reinterpreting it in a new engine with new characters, and uh, you, you don't have to either stick your neck out to make some big political statement or take any kind of commercial risks, because you know it works, and uh, you know that you aren't really taking any narrative risks, because those risks have already been taken, that trail's already been broken, so... Yeah, and it's it's this is kind of sort of a concept that we visited when we were talking about the history of rhythm games a bit, where one person will come up with a really great idea, and then everybody goes, me too, me too, and they all just run off and they do that shit. And it's we've been seeing this in every genre since the beginning of gaming in a lot of respects. Platformers were a big deal in the 80s and going into the 90s, so everybody was making a platforming game, and you had a million platformers. Guitar Hero just exploded the idea of the plastic instrument genre. So then we saw harmonics break off and do that with Rock Band and so on and so forth. And narratively speaking, that's no different. So you will see situations where, again, going back to the idea of The Walking Dead, we've changed what the zombie concept is in fiction. We've changed what zombies represent. We've changed what the ideas are surrounding that. So you can't just do another Resident Evil where it's 10 hours of fighting monsters the whole time 
until somebody at the end is like, ha, I'm a dick, and we go into that, it it has to be something different. It has to turn into a character-driven story first and foremost. And the thing that is most interesting here is that they do it because that's kind of the way the culture shifts, but also, as you said, because it's easy. That also, like, that also applies to writing in particular, of any kind, not just for games. Because, well, first of all, you're using a language that somebody else created. Secondly, you're probably writing a genre that somebody else pioneered. And thirdly, you kind of, you're not really putting together a story of, uh, you're not really putting together a narrative that's in any way, shape, or form original. You're basically taking what other people have already made from their own recombined, uh, their own recombined constructions of previous works, uh, and mashing them together in new ways, mashing together way things that you know will theoretically work, and hoping that this new combination will get the audience thinking the way you want them to think, or, uh, get them to have the reaction you want them to react, using a series of working parts that you've taken off something else. Oh yeah, and it's, it's, this is something, again, going back to like my frame of reference, this is something that I've seen most readily in the Silent Hill franchise. Because in the early games, you saw that Team Silent, which was the core foundation of what made the Silent Hill games work, said, listen, there's all of these really great classic horror concepts. Let's take those, put them into this shitty town that is covered in fog, and do something with it. So... You're borrowing from, you know, Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Dean Koontz, and basically Jacob's Ladder. And then occasionally putting in some stuff that doesn't necessarily fall into the horror genre, but can influence your idea. Like, Dostoevsky was the inspiration for Silent Hill 2, for Christ's sake. And you're building these ideas from your betters, from your, your predecessors, in a way that allows you to make something interesting and novel. And then we go into the modern Silent Hill games, and they are all borrowing from Silent Hill 2. Like, we've seen this in cinema, obviously. I, I want to say it was Kevin Smith once said that he didn't need to go to film school because he had spent all of his time watching films by the masters, and he had, you know, learned at that particular aspect how to do things in cinema from watching the films from those who had come before. Now, arguments about whether or not Kevin Smith actually needs to go to film school aside, the, the key point of that is you are going to learn from the people you idolize. I, I honestly say that all of my work is both inspired by the genre conventions themselves and by work that normally exists outside of whatever genre I'm writing in. Like, for example, when I wrote Mecha Ace, my obvious uh, main inspiration was uh was real robot anime specifically mobile suit gundam and well specifically mobile suit gundam and full metal panic but uh i also took a lot of inspiration from a lot of written military science fiction especially by david weber and it's kind of and that combination of things was what i thought made that story unique to the point where people were saying that i was uh I was kind of taking a hatchet job to the uh, mecha anime tropes I didn't like, but it wasn't even my hatchet. I was just taking concepts 
that I appreciated from another genre and applying them to ones where those conventions didn't even apply in that universe. Yeah, and it's, it's you're eventually going, like, everybody who creates in some form or fashion borrows from those that they respect. You know, as a game reviewer slash game journalist, to, to the extent that that is a term that you can apply somebody in my position, you know, I have borrowed over time my voice from various different game reviewers. I have borrowed the concepts of what I try to do from other reviewers in general, and I have tried to learn the lessons that others before me have imparted through their work. And again, even as somebody who occasionally wrote fiction, I borrowed some of my voice from Stephen King at times. I borrowed some of my voice from George Carlin at times. We, we all have people that have influenced us, and it's those influences that inevitably turn you into what you have become. And you can see that in gaming. Hideo Kojima quite clearly loves Blade Runner and Lethal Weapon because he made Snatcher and Police Knots, two games that are basically those things, but through his own creative lens. And let's not pretend Metal Gear is, you know, a wholly original idea either. That's definitely borrowed from, you know, films like Commando and things of that nature. But it's it's his interpretation from the time that he has spent studying those that came before, borrowing the parts that he liked, and ultimately creating his own voice with the voices of others. Yeah, the, uh, the artist's job is mostly to control their influences and uh, create and, and shape those influences into something which uh, I guess kind of represents them and their views, because if you don't do that, then uh, you're not really serving any kind of artistic role except for taking the views and the artistic voices of the people you're inspired by and kind of regurgitating them in a sort of um, multi, multi-inspiration slurry, I guess, and that's not really much good. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really interesting, too, that we're starting to get to a point now where gaming has been a genre, has been a media enterprise, whatever, for as long as it's been, that we are starting to see newer independent game developers come into their own by taking those ideas from other developers and applying them to their own games to the point where we're seeing those sort of gaming homages that we used to only see gaming borrow from other mediums. Again, it, it's, it's as I said, no surprise that Snatcher is borrowed from Blade Runner. It's no surprise that Police Knots is borrowed from Lethal Weapon. But if you look at something like Undertale, it, it quite clearly is borrowing from Earthbound to a certain extent, to the point where the original creator originally used to do like mods to Earthbound to one extent or another. That is clearly a game that was formative to that creator, and it clearly inspired the development of Earthbound. Cave Story is clearly based off of the Metroid franchise and the Metroidvania style of experience. Nightcry was specifically designed and pitched in its Kickstarter as an homage to Clock Tower. We are starting to see games homage other games build off of other games, where we're seeing these game developers say, you know what? this is part of my voice now, and borrow these ideas that worked in games that they loved, not just film, not just books, you know, actual other games that they played where they said, yes, this is what I love, and they bring that to life in their own games. But 
I think it's important to note that uh, a, a lot of these creators, while they are taking ideas from uh, games that they uh, games that they're inspired by, they're also kind of they're using their artistic voice to add in elements from almost outside of gaming conventions to put their own stamp on a creation like Undertale, for example. Well, it is heavily based on Earthbound, especially when it comes to the art style, but there's also kind of the one thing which almost everyone seems to mention about it is that it also borrows from not from not from like a video a, a standard combat-based video game perception of morality, but almost a human slash real life slash uh, what you what I guess what we consider Western society's sense of morality, especially the idea that murder is bad, because Undertale, well, Undertale punishes the idea of the player basically using violence to solve all their problems a lot more heavily than almost every other game with combat does, and certainly almost every other RPG does. Oh yeah, Undertale will, will punish you for using violence to solve any problem. And that, I think, is what makes it, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, original, and also as influential as it is. Not because it took these inspirations, but because, well, the creator specifically took those, uh, took his inspiration from Earthbound, and then took inspiration from a source outside of um, outside of the pieces that are normally used to build games with and put them together in a way that kind of created a new combination that people weren't expecting. Yeah, and I do, I do feel like a certain part of that is the movement of the independent genre, like the, 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 the independent gamer marketplace, as it were, to try and create games that are outside of the norm, where a lot of our games are sort of questioning the nature and the state of play and trying to put a more profound point on things than we are used to sort of you know sort of like breaking the fourth wall in books in this case we are also attempting to break the fourth wall of gaming in a lot of respects but a, a big part of it as you said is is taking ideas from outside of that outside of the genre and maybe even outside of just basic media understanding in general, and combining them with elements that have come before in gaming, which I, I think is is really interesting in that this is where you started to see within the world of cinema and within the world of, you know, literary pastimes, like some of, some of the best and most interesting developments come forth when people started taking things within their own genre and then crossbreeding them instead of just borrowing from inside or borrowing from outside, where you're, you're cross-pollinating these different ideas and these different concepts together. And it also means that uh, games themselves aren't limited to the implicit or explicit political statements that the media that we normally use to cannibalize for our narratives would come from. We can take in kind of fresh perspectives outside of outside of the literary world or the film world or previous games and apply them to, I, I guess you could say, tried and true mechanics, but you can judge them from new perspectives, which is something I, which I think is something that should be encouraged. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Like, there, there's no benefit in creating your anything in an echo chamber. Like, there's there there needs to be new perspectives on it. There needs to be new ideas. There needs to be new concepts being introduced we need to have not only just 
new ways of looking at things, but new questions to provide these answers to. Like, you can't just keep answering the same questions in different ways. We need these new questions coming in that shape our worldview. And it's, I think that's actually a good point to get into probably what is going to be the meatiest part of our discussion here, which is for all of the talk about historical borrowing in a way that kind of showcases how we've evolved the genre through doing it, there's been this undercurrent that's come up in bits and pieces as we've been talking about the downsides of this sort of thing. And I, I kind of feel like the idea of why historical evolution or historical borrowing in our narratives isn't necessarily always the best thing it is definitely something that needs to be considered here. Yeah, like I said earlier, if the artist doesn't themselves take steps to control what they the materials they've taken from their inspirations, then you're effectively just regurgitating the biases and the perspectives that have already been given. And I think a either a really good or a really bad example of this is The Division, which came out earlier this year, which I played a lot of and I enjoyed it. Like it's it's an enjoyable game, but uh, it ta- it borrows heavily from both post-apocalyptic media and from especially from uh, Tom Clancy's techno thrillers. And the problem with that is that it takes the premise of a techno thriller, which is basically that there are bad people who want to do bad things, and it's up to a group of government-sanctioned. Uh, people with extraordinary powers and really, really shiny toys to stop them. And it kind of merges that with the idea of society and breakdown, society and chaos, and it, it creates this fusion of that setting where you have effect- an effectively post-apocalyptic New York where you are playing as the heroes of a techno-thriller, and the implications of that are kind of horrifying because yeah you've got you've got uh, half the city still alive and you're basically running around one you're you're running around as people who are utterly unaccountable with all these shiny gadgets sanctioned by the government and two you're you're interacting with this world mostly by shooting at it so despite the narrative being the idea that uh the division is supposed to be a heroic rescuing force, which is here to you know save the city. The uh, and the developers' own admission that they were trying to be apolitical. That attempt at being politically neutral means that they weren't able to shape the setting and shape the narrative in a way which could have justified why the player characters are basically playing members of a government-sanctioned death squad with orders to shoot anyone they don't like. Yeah, I, I am not super comfortable with the idea that the Division as a concept is kind of sort of saying, you know, all of that, like, NSA spying shit that we were worried about? No, that's fine. That That's totally cool. Because, like, eventually we're going to have to save the world or whatever the fuck. It's basically saying it's okay that there's a deep state and it's okay that it exists, but what they really need are more automatic weapons. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's it's... I was not super thrilled with the idea of what that was trying to convey, and it's... You take that a step further, and you talk about not just, like, carrying over those sorts of biases, but other sorts of biases. And we don't see this that often, but it happens, and it's it's egregious when it does. Let's just, for a moment, talk about fantastical fantasy racism. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, um, I'm just gonna come out and say it, because... 
there's an entire page on TV Tropes that uses the term, I love Mass Effect. I think it's a great franchise. But can we talk for a minute about the Volus? They are literally space Jews. Yep. And I don't, I don't even mean like they're practitioners of Judaism or they're Jewish. They are stereotypical, negatively stereotyped Jewish people in space. Like their whole thing is making business deals, money, 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 money. It's, it's clearly, clearly borrowing from all of the worst stereotypes of Jewish people. And I am just not sure at what point, like, Bioware looked at this and said, yep, that's good, kick that out the door, we're fine with that. It's, uh, it's the same thing with fantasy, but I think science fiction gets kind of more of a, uh, I guess, more of a free pass with it, because they manage to, uh, especially if they manage to do the, uh, non-human, the, the non-human body types, but, I mean... I almost think it's less the fact that the Volus are space Jews and more the fact that they're a science fiction race based on fantasy tropes for space Jews. Kind of like the Asari are space elves or the yeah. uh, or the Batarians are basically space orcs uh, to some extent. Actually, no, I'd say the Batarians and the Krogan are both space orcs using different tropes, either using the noble savage trope or the um, invading, the invading morally bankrupt horde trope. I, like, I'm pretty sure these aren't all explicitly based on racial stereotypes, but they kind of are. And, and the way that writers, especially fantasy writers, kind of frame them definitely are. I mean, forgive me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but um, the Warcraft settings orcs are still based on magical Native Americans, aren't they? Kind of a bit. And likewise, like, how rare is it that you see, a, that you see humans that, in a fantasy setting, that are not in some way Western European. Uh, especially if, like, especially if they're, like, a major subset of uh, Western European... Especially if Western European humans are a major subset of uh, humanity in that setting. I mean, you're almost never going to see a fantasy setting where all of the humans are non-white. And it, it's, it, it also gets to be particularly concerning when you get to the point where you inevitably have to take historical contexts and you kind of have to apply them through modern wants and needs and narratives. Like, obviously there is a push, and with good reason, I personally feel, for diversifying who are our main characters in games. Like, there's, there's only so many times that we need to release, you know, another fucking product that allows people to beat off to bald-headed space marines or whatever the fuck. There can be women in games, there can be black people in games, there can be Asians in games as the main characters, and that's cool, and I would like to see more of that. But eventually, you kind of run headlong into the idea of how do you interpret that through the lens of history? And dealing with the last few Assassin's Creed games kind of makes that a problem. Because, like, Assassin's Creed 2 is an example, and the two other games that came after that were basically the Ezio Auditore story, you could really only do heavily male-focused primary narratives where female characters showed up as sort of secondary parts to that because women weren't exactly given a hell of a lot of power, and in a lot of cases they had to do their work behind the scenes. And don't get me wrong, doing that sort of a thing would be an interesting story in and of itself, but 
eventually you're going to come back to the point that sooner or later it, it's you're going to have to get to a position within the confines of history where women have enough power and enough representation to where they can do the sort of stuff that a character like Ezio can do for it to work within history. So you either have to fudge a hell of a lot of shit or you just have to not do that and like not not have that character option and neither one is going to make everyone happy. I would actually disagree there. I think that historical verisimilitude is obviously something that uh, you want to aim for in historical ga- in games set in historical settings. But what you prioritize as being um, more high priority for, for nailing the realism on is itself kind of a political statement. Whether you decide, like, for example, is it more important to have this gun sound exactly the way it's, it's supposed to sound or is it more historically accurate to have to say have a certain organization or a certain political movement be as racially or uh, be as racially diverse as it was historically or for example um, and I would say that uh, if we can fudge things in historical settings like like dysentery or uh, or, you know, getting infected wounds by just saying, look, um, it, it, sure, this was possible. Sure, like, it, it, he, it might have even been likely, but that uh, it was possible that he might have never gotten infected wounds or, you know, like, dysentery or uh, suffered any of the other historically accurate parts of that setting. We could also say that, uh, look, it, it's implausible that a woman or a person of color could have been here in that setting, but it's not necessarily impossible, especially given the, um, especially given the later portions up to the early modern period where the existence of traveling scholars and traveling merchants and traveling dignitaries are vastly understated in conventional historiography. I would definitely say that it is possible to say that, look, um, there might have only been, say, for example, five five women fighting in Wellington's army at the Battle of Waterloo, but you can play as one of those five. Yeah, the same way that you'll, for example, um, you'll never get a misfire if you fire your antiqua if you fire your old-fashioned flintlock pistol, despite that happening maybe once every ten times. Can I just say? When you started off and you said, we have to fudge what have you, like dysentery, I was like, wait a minute, where is this going? (laughs) Um, But, no, you do bring up a valid point, and I do agree with you on that. It's just that when you do that sort of a thing, unfortunately, and this is a failing of the genre. This is not me saying I don't want to do this. It's just a failing of how we represent it in the genre that's frustrating that I want us to do better on, is that eventually you kind of have to systemize those concepts a bit. And sometimes we do that a hell of a lot worse than others. And I have two examples that both come from the same franchise of how you can systemize stuff really, really well and how you can systemize stuff really, really poorly. And that, once again, is Assassin's Creed. Oh, dear. Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation attempts to systemize sexism by way of also systemizing class positioning. So you take a character who is a black woman and you put her into a position where she can change outfits, essentially, to blend in with specific parts of society. The game definitely 
has a presentation that reflects the fact that she is a black woman in a decidedly racist time period. And for the most part, I feel like that does a good job of representing, you know, what that would have been like. But what we're systemizing here mechanically is the idea that she is treated differently dependent upon the outfits that she is wearing. If she is dressed up as a more cultured person for the time period, she is more commonly likely to be harassed by street thugs and things of that nature and is more harshly judged by performing actions that are outside of her standing in society, but is also more capable of blending in with the upper class. If she dresses like, you know, like basically a servant, uh, she's able to blend in more readily within those environments, but can't really blend in so well in upper class environments. If she dresses like an assassin, she's kind of giving herself away there to a certain extent and can work within the confines of what an assassin would have tool set wise, but doesn't really blend in particularly well in the lower class environments or the upper class environments. So it's there's kind of a trade off there as to what you can do dependent upon how you choose to present yourself. And I feel like that's an interesting systemization of class to a certain extent, the the race aspects of things, and her position as a woman in a time period that didn't necessarily give a whole lot of freedom to women. And then on the other side of things, you have the DLC for Assassin's Creed Four: Freedom Cry, where slavery was literally treated like a commodity. I think... The, um, I think Freedom Cry is actually kind of a prisoner to the idea of the power fantasy as a fundamental uh, basis of game design. Because, well, yeah, we all know academically that slavery is bad, but, like, you're playing a character in Freedom Cry who, well, narratively is, uh, if I remember correctly, a former slave, right? Yes. But you're playing him as he is leading a rebellion, as he is playing the savior, and you're in a position of power high enough so that the people you are rescuing really only kind of seem like tokens. Yeah, and it's the game doesn't really comment on that as such, though. I think that even the very, very simple narrative of slavery is bad, guys, could have been served a lot better had you been playing most of that story in the position of somebody with no power and kind of having the player chafe at the loss of their agency the same way a slave would chafe at the loss of their freedom and i i feel like that was a missed opportunity there but i also understand that assassin's creed is a game about basically being a ninja and stabbing people in the neck yeah and i I feel like there was also a lot of back and forth on the white imperialism as narrative point for far cry 3 where some people, myself included, looked at the way the narrative of that worked and said, well, white imperialism is bad, but I think the game kind of understands that and is kind of taking the piss on it to a certain extent, because while the main character is kind of presented as, like, you know, this white imperialist savior, he's also consistently at the beck and call of his betters, and th- they're kind of making it out that he he's also sort of a joke, that he he's being pushed into service by others, to do their bidding and is easily replaceable insofar as that goes. And the game is fairly explicit about the fact that this has happened before and will probably happen again. But others just took it as a straight, you know, white imperialism allegory and and weren't so charitable with that. Well, I've 
not really familiar with Far Cry as a series, so I can't really comment on that. No, that's fair. It's just it's just an idea to kind of bring up as far as how, like how even if somebody comes out because the, the the writer has kind of sort of come out and said that like he he wasn't doing a straight white imperialism sort of thing. That that no matter what your intention is there, you have to be careful with it because even if you're trying to systemize something that is saying something very simple, you know, slavery be bad, white imperialism is dumb, that that you have to implement it in a certain way, or you're going to have a lot of people look at that and they're going to say, all right, slavery's bad, but I have to actually collect slaves and kind of treat them like a win state. Or you say white imperialism is bad, but a whole lot of this fucking plot is white imperialism. You know, it's, it's, there's a big balancing act there. And I think that might not just be plot, but also might be game design in the sense that um, you've, theory, like, even if narrativistically you're saying that you're not supposed to be the, you're not supposed to be the big hero here. You're still in a power fantasy, playing as the person who can do everything. And like I said, I'm not familiar with the Far Cry series, but if I remember correctly, in Far Cry Three, you're playing, you're playing a white American tourist, and you're the one doing most of the legwork. Mm-hmm. So, it, even even if the narrative kind of uh, fights against it, the narrative time-wise is only a tiny part of the game. For most of it. You're still playing a white dude with a gun who's uh, who's acting the superhero. Yeah. And I think that might be where those accusations have some basis. No, that's fair. Like I said, I mean, intent only counts for so much. I just think it's interesting that like you you're, you can go in with the best of intentions and still ultimately come out of a situation where because that's not really as evolved as it could be yet you're kind of in this position where you're still attempting to systemize stuff that you may end up presenting really poorly without even intending to do so. I'd say that it's almost the system itself that's the problem. If we're talking about historical evolution of concepts, the codification of video games, especially action-based games, as power fantasy is a big one. And I would definitely think if uh, you wanted to make a post-colonialist or an anti-imperialist message, uh, you would have to tell that story from the perspective of the victimized, and that means not giving the not giving the player the power that they're used to, which is an extremely risky decision to make. Which is why I think uh, indie developers do it a lot a lot more frequently than AAA developers do. It's also worth noting that in all of this discussion of historical context, the one thing that we kind of haven't gotten to yet that I I think is probably going to be one of the more obvious ideas and concept is when you take historical concepts and apply them to your product, but you ultimately lose the message of what those historical concepts mean. You lose their impact. You lose their effect. And it's it, it, we can kind of sort of see this in two ways. The first is when somebody takes something that has an actual historical impact and value, presents it as is within its own time period and everything, and kind of loses that message through systemic or narrative decisions. Or when they take those concepts and apply them to a fantastical setting and still kind of lose that. And in the first case... The example that that comes to mind immediately to me is Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. 
Grand Theft Auto San Andreas is one of those games where it's kind of taking the view of 90s racial tension in California. You know, the, the, the L.A. riots were still a thing that was reasonably fresh in everyone's mind. And cinema, in particular, was very into the idea of creating stories around that environment, that world, because there were directors who were coming up who had directly been exposed to that and had a story they wanted to tell. Like, this is, this is at a point where, you know, John Singleton produced Boys in the Hood, which was a very direct, in-your-face representation of what black people were going through during those time periods in that environment. Do the right thing. Spike Lee presented a very simple but powerful story about racial tension, again, during the L.A. riots, that had real depth and impact. And then you try to apply that story to Grand Theft Auto with its weird jokey ha-ha bullshit about, like, Laszlo making fun of people on the radio and, you know, billboards about penis jokes and, you know, th this general inability to present a world that isn't Saints Row. So you've got this really powerful story set in a time period where that's meaningful and says something, and you're setting it against this backdrop of ha-ha dick jokes. And it, it, it feels more like this, this tonal clash that's like the most deflated version of Don't Be a Menace that you can imagine. I honestly think that uh, San Andreas could have worked as a tragic comedy almost in that sense. But if it weren't for, once again, that whole thing of being imprisoned by the convention of power fantasy. Because, like, Grand Theft Auto's whole appeal is you steal cars, you gun down people you don't like, and you basically have, you basically have the ability to do whatever the fuck you want, damn the consequences. Even if the police do eventually hunt you down, you'll, you'll just end up getting wasted, and, you know, popping out of a hospital with minus some of your money, right? So I feel like if they wanted to do a story based on racial tension, they would have had to systematize the fact that not only is the system against you, which the narrative does kind of uh, underline very well with uh, the existence of Officer Tenpenny, but it has to systematize the idea that the idea of the tensions being so high that you're like one bullet away from losing everything. And while the narrative tries to hammer that home, the game itself really doesn't. It, it still becomes relatively consequence-free crime romping. Yeah, and I feel like that kind of comes back to the conversation I had with uh, Matt Yeager a while back on Ludo Narrative Dissonance, where, once again, you have this gritty urban crime drama about this character who's being screwed over by the law, but also commits wacky acts of cartoon violence and just fucking shoots up everything, and, like, nothing really bad happens to him unless the narrative demands it. Going on to the other side of things, it's... I don't necessarily feel like this was as bad as it was portrayed it was going to be in the lead-up, but Deus Ex Human Revolution has this very clear indication that it, it kind of wants to treat augmented citizens as sort of a talk about racism. And it's not as direct as the advertising laid it out to be. It's not as direct as the media being presented laid it out to be, but it's definitely there. There is definitely a distinct undercurrent of, you know, future racism with people calling you clanks and 
augmented people being segregated to ghettos and, you know, just, just general mistreatment by the police and being hassled and things of that nature. But the game doesn't really have anything to say about that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of almost set dressing, especially since it doesn't really... Well, obviously, it makes the stance... You, you kind of have to make the stance racism is bad, but it doesn't really take any effort to hammer that home, I don't think. Uh, not in a way where the player would actually, you know, have, feel the impact of it. I mean, uh, well, in Human Revolution, anyways, I haven't played Mankind Divided, so I wouldn't know about that. But in Human Revolution, there's almost no point where you are ever... where you, the player or you, Adam Jensen, are ever really victimized for being an augmented person. You're, uh, like, there, there are people who will tell you, like, you know, you should, you, you, were, you were beautiful just the way you were, or something like that, or, like, give you dirty looks, but you'll never be, you'll, your agency will never be constrained because you happen to have two mechanical arms. Yeah, and Mankind Divided is basically the same way. Again, like, that's, that's actually what I was referencing, and I call it Human Revolution, because I just completely just blend those two games together in my mind. It, it's kind of frustrating, honestly. But Mankind Divided is presented as aesthetically worse, but not worse in a meaningful way. People will, you know, say racist shit on the street. It's, it's much more direct, much more out in the open. You know, they call you a clank, the cops harass you, all this shit. But it doesn't really impact Adam in any significant way. And again, it's on a broad sense, the narrative says racism is bad, sure. But it doesn't really have a particular viewpoint on whether the particular racism it is creating for the augmented people is bad. And it, it doesn't want to try and influence your view. It wants you to think what you want to think. And to be clear... I don't want Mankind Divided or Human Revolution to go the Bioshock Infinite route of, you know, ridiculous cartoon racism as a way of just straight up saying racism is bad. But I also don't want Mankind Divided or Human Revolution to go the original Bioshock route, RE Objectivism, where you just introduce objectivism or racism in the case of Deus Ex as a thing that exists in your world, and then you don't say anything about it. Yeah, then, then it just becomes set dressing. It's almost like putting a uh, fade filter, putting a low saturation filter over all the colors and splashing mud everywhere and saying, and basically using that as an aesthetic choice, as opposed to having it actually say something when in real life, these are, you know, actual problems that we still have to face. Yeah, and it's it's like... The original Deus Ex games didn't necessarily take a hardline stance or anything, but they also weren't trying to represent the choices of J.C. Denton and later Alex, last name I've forgotten, as moral quandaries that had an allegory in human society right now. In those stories, the, the allegory was much more based in the idea of the technological singularity and transhumanism, which we're not at a point where that's a thing that we have to really morally concern ourselves with. Like, you know, just because Zoe Quinn put a fucking magnet in her finger does not mean that we're going to be, like, bonding ourselves to machines tomorrow. We are still years away from a point where cybernetics are 
a legitimate concern. We are still years away from a point where anything remotely close to an actual learning system in computers is is really going to be a thing we have to worry about. And ethically, there there's a certain degree of maybe we should be thinking about that now, but it's not something that concerns day-to-day -day human life. Racism is. And I don't have a problem with the first two Deus Ex games not taking a hardline stance because these were concepts that at the time that this game came out were so far flung into the future that that was something where you could leave that open and ambiguous and free to interpretation and the, 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 the player can make their own decisions. The way that this game presents augs is very much in a black and white sort of racial context and it's not necessarily as bad as again the media presented it but it's also worth noting that a lot of the reason why it's not as bad is because we don't have context for a lot of it it's literally just they call me clank when i play as adam jensen and i'm clearly aware that that's you know a derogatory term but I don't have any frame of reference for why it's bad. There's also the fact that, like, racism itself is more than just, you know, the surface aspect of being called ethnic slurs or being hassled by police. It's also kind of, that's kind of the tip of an iceberg of an entire system, which you don't really have when, if you're just taking those surface aspects and transplanting them into a game world. And speaking of feedback loops, like... In, in our world, racism is itself tied in with things like class and perceptions of danger and, uh, and economic instability, whereas, once again, I am, I am kind of speculating here, but because we don't really see like this kind of thing, but last I checked, Adam Jensen is capable, as an augment, of punching through walls and uh, grabbing people behind them. I'm pretty sure no real ethnicity in our world is capable of doing that. Yeah, which was always kind of a thing that was really confusing to me about, like, X-Men. X-Men as a racism allegory was always kind of flimsy because black people are not growing claws and stabbing you through the neck. Yeah. As a homosexuality allegory, I think it worked a whole lot better. The, the main problem, I'd say, is that it, it takes a real-world issue, which still victimizes people, and almost gives it a justification for why it might be considered okay. Yeah, and the other thing that's really confusing is that if you played through to the end of Human Revolution going into Mankind Divided, the other thing that was really frustrating about the racial allegory as it relates to its ramping up in Mankind Divided is the augmented people are ultimately sent like a signal that makes them go crazy, go nuts, and just kill people and break shit. And there is a real concern that what if somebody attempts to exploit that again? And there's definitely an undercurrent narratively of, well, why isn't the government trying to prevent that from happening? Or why aren't we doing something? And there's a certain degree of, okay, the government sucks, and they, they're ultimately being controlled by the Illuminati and blah, 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 whatever. But the narrative doesn't really try to support the either side in a way that it makes them worth supporting. You've got a whole bunch of people who are, you know, putting these people into camps because they potentially represent a threat, because what if they're exploited again? And they're being horrible about it, and they're being shitty, and they're just being rude, 
but they also have a legitimate fear. But, like, we're, we're not really doing anything to explore that. We're not really doing anything to expand on that. It's Adam Jensen is doing spy shit around this concept, and it's I feel like there's a better story to be told in there. Like, at best, I feel like you could have probably framed Mankind Divided as the NRA debate. Or as the gun debate, I should say. Where, do we need guns? What benefit do guns bring into our lives? What negatives do they have associated with them? Because a gun is a tool. No better or worse than the person who uses it. True, but then again, um, most people don't, most gun owners don't need guns to live. So, it's, it, there's no. kind of its own problems. No, but I feel like you could probably do a better job of framing that idea around the gun debate than you could framing it around racism. Because, again, we didn't have a thing happen where all of the all of the Asian people in the U.S. suddenly got a kill signal and started murdering, like, just random people in the streets, you know? Like, that's that's not a thing that happened, and that's not a thing that's ever gonna happen. Like, we're not just gonna send a signal one day and, oh, all of the Hispanic people have just randomly started murdering folks in the streets. We have no idea why that's happening. Better put them all in camps, you know? That's a genuine problem when it comes to trying to transplant real-world uh, issues into um, fictional settings, because... In certain fringe parts of the right wing, there are people who are afraid that black people will rise up simultaneously and start murdering white people. Like, that is a crackpot theory that actually gets circulation. And the idea of a AAA game basically saying, we're putting these people in camps because they rose up and started murdering random people. Oh yeah, this is an allegory for apartheid, which is a system which uh, historically has oppressed black people. I'm like, yeah, a little bit. Um, I wouldn't have done that. No, I, I feel like I feel like uh, Valkyria Chronicles actually did a pretty good allegory of racism with the Darkson characters. Although the fact that they were all white was kind of not so great. But don't spoil that for me. I haven't beaten Batamus yet. No, it's 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 like just the allegory that they use with the Darkson in general, where people just treat them like shit because of something that they don't even really understand, I, I think is interesting. But I feel like that's probably about as much mileage as we are going to get out of this for this particular podcast. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground here today, and there, there's definitely a lot here that I think we would need to think about and you know chew on a bit. But I do want to say thank you very much, Paul, for coming on to the podcast this week. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It was great to be here. It was great having you, and I, I really feel like this was a, a fruitful and informative discussion, and I would love to have you back anytime. Awesome. But if you liked what you listened to today, uh, feel free to like, comment, and subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud over at soundcloud.com slash markbwriting, and you can find the podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and basically anywhere that hosts podcasts for your subscription needs. If you want to follow along on social media, you can follow me over on Twitter at markbwriting, and on Facebook at Mark B. Writing Home. If you want to follow my writing work, you can check out my writing on Die Hard Game Fan or over at markbwriting.com. And, Paul, where can people find you at? Well, uh, I have a Twitter at... Uh, uh, well, my Twitter handle is Catafrak, C-A-T-A-P-H-R-A-K. I've also got a Patreon where I do stuff based on... Oh, I do world-building stuff based on my, uh, my fantasy setting, uh, the Infinite Sea, which is... Uh, 
Sabres and Fady and Guns and Fady. Uh, that is uh, at uh, patreon.com slash, once again, C-A-T-A-P-H-R-A-K. So if you're interested in listening to more of my rambles, but in text form, you can find me there. All right. And on that note, join us next week when our topic will be the top five games that best systemize sexism. On behalf of Paul Wang, my name is Mark B. saying stay safe out there, junkers.